Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul rees Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein, and we're joined on the line by Radio Survivor's Matthew Lassar. Hello, Matthew. Hello there. Nice to be here. Matthew, it's so nice to have you. Founder of Radiosurvivor.com, as well as a historian who's written three books about, about radio and radio history. And then today, we're going to be talking about one of your areas of, dare I say, expertise, uh, passion. You care about the history of the Federal Communications Commission. And the reason why we're talking about the FCC on Radio Survivor is because we care about radio. We care about community radio, college radio stations. And, and our ability to communicate. Yeah. and I mean, it's communications. And it's the right internet. there in yeah. the name. And we go deep into the weeds on Radio Survivor when we, when we do episodes about the FCC. And uh, instead of trying to justify that with a long sentence... I'm just going to throw some ideas out there and ask you guys if I have this correctly. The Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, controls the internet. So, Matthew, does the FCC control the internet? Well, um, the FCC does not control the the internet. The FCC wanted, under its previous administration, to invoke a title of the um, Communications Act that gives it the right to regulate the internet as a telecommunications service, primarily in terms of not interfering with the transfer of content, um, um, especially uh, to provide okay. s- sort of like premium services and things like that. But beyond that, the FCC does not control the Internet. It doesn't control the content of the Internet. Um, it doesn't control the way that people set up frameworks on the Internet or any of that stuff. Right. But when we talk about the FCC on Radio Survivor, we're often uh, – deep in the weeds about net neutrality, the idea of an internet where all things being equal, nothing is slowed down or blocked based on how much money those services can provide to the to the pipes owners, to the ISP companies. So Right. Uh, right. That's what I was talking about. I mean yeah. that's basically what I, that's basically what I was talking about. The previous administration um, under um President Obama believed that it had the right to do that and proceeded to do that. And the present administration right. under yeah. President Trump has relinquished that And the that courts power. in the, in the D.C. But, Circuit Court but, of but Appeals courts, said that they did have that right. Yeah. yeah the, so, court, the courts have said they could do that if they wanted to do it. So that's that's one topic for today is is the Internet for and the FCC. I think it's important to note for l- listeners who are new to the idea of the FCC as a political body that the way it's structured is really uh, essentially – it's half Republicans, half Democrats, and the uh, party that controls the White House, the executive branch, gets to name the head, and the head then is the is well, the well. Yeah, there's run- five, there are five commissioners. Yeah, three come from the party. And so the as soon as you say math, though, I'm afraid we're going to lose a radio. No, um, it's three and two. <laughs> it's still hard for me. <laughs> but essentially, the executive branch picks the head of the FCC, and the FCC runs things, and that's also the swing vote that controls the body. So it really is. The executive but, branch but runs Paul, the FCC. Yes, but what Paul said is is correct. Um, yeah, the of course. Tradition, the tradition is that the party in power gets three seats on the Federal Communications Commission. So it's um, when it's a full five commissioners, it used to be seven. Now it's five. Hmm. Um, the party in power always has a majority of commissioners. Now, moving on to the next idea that the FCC uh, – has well, a general. I, I, I think we shouldn't leave internet alone. Stick, no, we'll come back to the internet. But the FCC also uh, runs the radios. It, it controls the radio landscape in the United States. Well, when the Federal Communications Commission was created, 
it was created to in, in nine and it was launched in 1934 it was created to be the regulatory overseer of two things um telephony <laughs> um telephone service yeah. and the federal um regulator of, of of the over regulator uber regulator of telephone service and um the broadcast airwaves it was it was created to to set up those two things oh. um Previously, another commission had run a federal commission had overseen um, telephone and telegraph service, and that was transferred over to the Federal Communications Commission and an earlier commission called the Federal Radio Commission, which had been created under Herbert Hoover, was 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 eliminated. That just regulated radio. And now the FCC regulated radio and telephone service, uh, broadcasting and telephone service. And this was expanded to television right in the um in the um, uh, post-World War II era. But, you know, the FCC could regulate anything that Congress says it wants to regulate. Yeah. Right? I mean, the FCC was created by Congress, and Congress can say, look, you have to do this, or look, you have to do that, and provide You have it, to it, lower it, American cell phone bills today. It, they pay too much. Uh, the FCC could have that power if Congress gave it right. to them. It, um, and, uh, but assuming that 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 would pass mustard with the courts, then the FCC yeah. would regulate those things. <laughs> and that's another very important part of this story is that the story of how the FCC uh, exercises its power over our communications systems, radio, television, the internet, our phones, is all also bound up with the U.S. court system. Well, it, because it, it's bound up with the law. Yeah, right. and, and companies that are... I mean, if we talk about uh, very recent history, the companies whose... Uh, whose businesses are impacted by these decisions at the FCC and and the companies are, are the the individual the the public benefit groups that that join they, they have a battle in public court. interest groups well yeah. right what what happens here is you is that you know we have this balance of power congress writes laws yep. and then it is up to uh the executive branch to execute these laws to see them into into power right and to see them into action it's radio survivor civics 101 so the the federal communications commission is one branch of that power yeah so congress writes a law the communications act in its various uh, forms that gives the fcc specific guidelines about what it, it has power over or not and then there's lots of gaps things that are not necessarily specified outright but you know it says it, it has control over the radio spectrum which includes it can include ship to shore. That includes yeah. broadcast radio. Includes the television, first responder communications, satellite, etc. Yeah. But it may not say very specifically what things are to be done. And often it's given in sort of vague terms, such as for the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Yeah. Um, and then the FCC takes that, interprets it, and someone can say, "Well, we don't believe the FCC has acted in a way that is according to the law or precedent," and that's a court challenge. Moreover, of course, someone can also challenge the law itself, right? Yeah. Someone can say, we don't agree with this particular law as passed by Congress, that, mm. that it perhaps that it, it, is, uh, it is not constitutional. They often hear that. Or it's not compatible with a different statute and various other procedures. So this and is they all, can challenge the law as well. This is all very useful information to sort of establish a baseline of uh, reality in the United States because we're today on Radio Survivor, we really – I wanted to um, – we've been spending – hours upon hours on the show talking about the Federal Communications Commission, talking about the dumb things that the FCC has been doing lately. Dumb right. uh, dumb is a broad term. Listen to four hours well, of greatest Well, I, I think what you, mean is, what you mean is is that for folks who are concerned about the public interest, 
right? A notion that there's an accountability to the public in the use and regulation of radio spectrum, of internet, yeah. of wireline communications, that the balance is being tipped in favor of owners. For generations now. Right. Of you know, and and that's I think where you want you want to drag out this framing here. You know, the FCC, you know, takes a lot of guff. And in many cases it's deserved. But we also have to recognize that yeah. some things for which the FCC is principally blamed, it is only an accessory to. So, like, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which grandly deregulated radio ownership, that was an act of Congress. Yes. That was right. signed by Democratic President Bill Clinton. It was the FCC's job to execute the mandates there. But when it came to the ownership rules, the FCC had no ability to reverse them. Right. It was it, it, They were given a very explicit mandate by Congress on radio ownership rules. And when we talk about, I think, the FCC you know, has power over things, very often that power is about regulating ownership as it's turned out. Mm -hmm. And I think, Matthew, I think you can probably illuminate this and then that's sort of a shift, right? That that has turned out to be one of the principal ways in which the FCC currently regulates our communications uh, world is through ownership because it's not always been the case that ownership was the only way or the principal way. Do I have that correct? Well... In the 1990s, you mentioned the Telecommunications Act of 1996, and in the 1990s, there was a really big shift in the way P the FCC and communications regulators in general uh, defined the public interest. And in order to understand that shift, you really have to go all the way back to the beginning of federal regulation of the airwaves, which began with Herbert Hoover who was president of the United States from 1928 to 1932. And he's generally remembered as the president who sort of didn't get it together during the outset of the Great Depression and was ousted by Franklin Roosevelt. He was, in fact, um, a very, very smart man who um, during the 1920s was the head of the Department of Commerce under a succession of Republican presidents. And he defined the public interest in a very different way than people in, than Republicans and Democrats did in the 1990s. He basically envisioned radio as being regulated via a kind of a sharing model rather than a, um, a competition model. And I wrote an article about this, which is on Radio Survivor's site. It's called Herbert Hoover's Four Warnings About Radio. He began regulating radio licenses with the Department of Commerce. Many of the owners of early radio stations basically wanted to own their licenses, their frequency licenses outright. They just wanted to own them outright. And um, Hoover thought that was crazy. Like, uh, like forever. Right, forever. He, their arguments for total privatization, he wrote in his memoirs, were in a fashion comparable to private ownership of a water navigation channel. Hmm. So he basically compared, he said, this is like, you know, um, some real estate company owning the Hudson River. Right. Which at, which at that time was not just a, a pleasant thing to stare at, but would have also been um, a really important part of the flow of goods and services and information in a city. And, and he said that there had to be a public right over the ether roads, he said. He wrote wow. this in his, um, in his, in his memoirs. There, and he said there must be at the time, no national regret that we have parted with a great national asset. 
He said that. He warned. And he said wow. at the first radio conference in 1922, and it's worth it to listen to what he's – I'm going to read this to you. Um, he said, I think at the outset it should be agreed that the use of radio telephone for communication between single individuals, as in the case of the ordinary telephone, is a perfectly hopeless notion. Obviously, if 10 million telephone subscribers are crying through the air for their mates, they will never make a junction. The wireless spoken word has one definite field, and that is for broadcast of certain predetermined material of public interest from central stations. The material must be limited to news, to education, and to entertainment, and the communication of such commercial matters as are important to large groups of the community at the same time. And um, he also said... It is therefore primarily a question of broadcasting, and it becomes a primary public interest to say who is to do the broadcasting, under what circumstances, and with what type of material. And he warned, it is inconceivable that we should allow so great a possibility for service Mm -hmm. to be drowned in advertising chatter. We hear a great deal about freedom of the air, but there are two parties to freedom of the air and to freedom of speech for that matter. There is the speech maker and the listener. Certainly in radio, I believe in freedom for the listener. He has much less option upon what he can reject for the other fellow is occupying his receiver set. The listener's only option is to abandon his right to use his receiver. Freedom cannot mean a license to every person or corporation who wishes to broadcast his name or his wares and thus monopolize the listener's set. From this came this uh, from these arguments came the idea which was the mid-20th century's idea of of public interest, which was that okay, we're going to let you have these licenses. We're going to let you have these basically ATM machines in many instances where you're going to be able to make a lot of money yeah. on the air. with the, But you're going to have to do things in exchange for that. You're going to have to do things that conform to the public interest. You're going to have to promise to produce public affairs programming. That's not just about you. And in one important case in 1929, they removed the rate, a, a license from a radio station from one owner saying, all you're talking about is yourself. You're not talking about anything else but yourself. We're not going to give you that privilege. You have to you have to share with the public. You have to provide important information about public affairs. You have to do public service announcements. You have to do emergency broadcasting. You get this privilege, but it comes with responsibilities. And for a while, the FCC even had something called the Fairness Doctrine, which said that if you put something on your radio station that's really controversial, you got to give other parties um, an opportunity to respond. And, and how was long was that fairness doctrine, Matthew? In, that fairness in doctrine was around until the mid-1980s when um, the Reagan administration of um, FCC abandoned it. Hmm. And it should be noted that when the, when, the, when the FCC issued a proceeding to abandon the fair – whether to abandon the fairness doctrine, which they did, even conservatives at the time called for the retention of the fairness doctrine. Under what argument? Why? 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 Because we often consider, you know, the deregulatory impulse to be one yeah. uh, that is principally identified as conservative. On and the because they spectrum. did, we because define they the fairness ex- doctrine. They experienced they experienced much of broadcasting at the time. Conservatives experienced much of broadcasting as having a liberal bias. Um, when it came to issues like abortion, when it came to issues, controversial issues like busing, they felt like the media that that NBC, ABC and CBS had this liberal bias and that they wanted the right to respond to what they experienced as a liberal bias. That may seem rather strange to some of our listeners, but that's what they thought. 
Um, and so they and wanted this bulwark, which in which the FCC required if you are a controversial viewpoint that you also gave time to its complement, right? Essentially, and and, and you used to and see so this, this on so television. This cherry bottle. Yeah, you huh? used to see this on television. I mean, it was very common. I remember uh, growing up in the in the seventies and eighties, you would see on television your local news station would have an editorial, often mm-hmm. kind of like the editorial page in the newspaper, and and sometimes the editorial would be like a a general manager who would give. Uh, an opinion on some, you know, something of local import, maybe uh, something the mayor had done. And then uh, on a subsequent evening, you would have and now an answer to the general manager from somebody with an opposing viewpoint. We'd get that minute and a half, two minutes somewhere in the middle of your nightly newscast. This was a fairly common yeah. thing, uh, you know, and, and I remember it very well. And, 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 and I even remember I rem- even remember that Johnny Carson uh, who had the uh, had the a famous late night show um, <laughs> on, on, on TV? Do uh, we have to tell the young millennials who about Johnny the Carson show? is the Gen Z? I, yeah, absolutely. As a teacher at the University of California, right. I don't take anything for granted he, anymore. He uh, is like you know, he is the uh, he is the Jimmy Fallon yeah. of the nineteen Jimmy Fallon, but there were no other Jimmy Fallons. He's Jimmy Fallon <laughs> without Stephen Colbert. Yes. He, he had his own funny fictional guy. Who would always come out in a plaid hunting outfit? Oh yeah, and Floyd Arturbo. Yes, Floyd Arturbo. Floyd Arturbo <laughs> would always come out in this imaginary, and he would do these funny fairness doctrine responses to something uh. that that Johnny Carson had said. And of course, everybody knew what he was talking about because a lot of these responses were not exactly, you know, right. uh, tel- telegenic responses. They were from ordinary people, just you know, giving their just giving their reply. And anyway. Well, Matthew, I want to take that notion and update it real quickly just to kind of put some perspective on it. Because in in the last uh, 18 months, we saw an attempt by uh, the Sinclair Broadcasting Group to take over the TV stations uh, owned by Tribune Broadcasting. Um, And there was a lot of – there was a lot of smoke around this because on the one hand – uh, they were really trying to manipulate the ownership rules in order to accomplish this. It was also very clear, even though it sounds very partisan, believe me, I'm not as partisan as this sounds, that this was a, a like an organ, a, an information organ of the Republican Party right. because, that wanted to own these local t- well, news stations. And, and the way it was expressed, and the way it is expressed, is that the local stations that are owned by Sinclair Broadcast Group are given these editorials from the head office in Maryland yeah. to run For, former Trump administration officials editorializing yes. about national news. And right. And this is something, you know, you'll see in most nightly news, you don't have the editorial segment anymore. When the fairness doctrine went away, so did this sort of editorial function. Uh, I think because it, because for a news station, it, it's a conundrum, I suppose. I don't know the entire mechanism and maybe Matthew knows why they sort of went away, but then you have the Sinclair group airing, you know, these editorials for one particular political point of view without the requirement to give any sort of answer. Right. So that uh, a viewer of the local news. This is the reason. This is is one of the reasons. It's not the entire reason. I mean, it would be an overgeneralization to say the elimination of the fairness doctrine resulted in our time. But (laughs) it is true that uh, it's very difficult for me to imagine many broadcasters being able to handle the number of fairness doctrine requests that they would get to Rush Limbaugh. Right. Or, or Sean Hannity, doc- et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, right. or any of them. I mean, they would basically be, you know, like a, you know, a, 
a tick, you know, everybody would be standing around the block, you know, on long lines, you know, to respond, each one getting a number, you know, it right. would be. Or the MSNBC, uh, you know, Democrat side of yeah. the same thing. Of the same thing. Would have it applied to cable uh, or would have it only applied to to, uh, to broadcast? The Fairness Doctrine. This is this is a gap in my knowledge. The Fairness Matthew. Doctrine only applied to broadcast. It so didn't it wouldn't apply to, apply to MSNBC. Oh, no, no, FCC doesn't run cable. So the Fox so, News would also fascinating. Have been so we're talking about all of this though because um, we're trying to imagine a media landscape in the United States that um, that the FCC could uh, that the FCC could enact changes, possibly even in the very near future, that uh, would benefit people like us at Radio Survivor who love listening to community radio and, and care about the um, the overall health of the community radio community, as well as uh, the ways in which the internet can be used to communicate with each other um, outside of the realm of commerce and uh, the entirely for-profit internet that we sort of, um, we can see already how slimy and slippery that kind of, you know, Facebook community can be when it's run uh, with with advertising dollars as the primary motivator. Um, yes. So in the 1990s, this sharing model that you know that Herbert Hoover sort of you know that Herbert didn't sort of launch. He launched. Yeah. The, these assumptions was the abandoned. Public, the public service model for uh, the media. The public service model and the public service. I think that's a better term. The public service model. And instead. The assumption, the, the new assumption was, is that what we just need is more competition. Mm-hmm. If we just open everything up to competition, we deregulate as much as we possibly can. We let telephone companies um, get into broadcasting. We let broadcasters get into telephone. We let cable get into the internet. Like we let this group get into that. We just basically open up everything to competition. These things that Herbert Hoover was concerned about um, happening will just magically happen. It'll just automatically happen because there'll be so much competition. There'll be so much variety out there that these things will be provided without any um, without any direct intervention and regulation by the federal government. And that was the prevailing assumption which forged the Telecommunications Act of 1996 and also the breakup of AT&T in the 1980s. And it is – and so now regulators no longer think about these questions that Herbert Hoover Hmm. – um, you know, launched. They think just about how can we create more competition, at least in theory they do. In reality – it's anything but the case. But the theory is, is that they're trying to figure out how to make things more competitive. So that's the voice of Matthew Lassar. He's one of the radio survivors here. I'm Paul Riesmandel. And with us also is Eric Klein. And we are talking about the FCC and asking the question of, well, what, what can the FCC do and, and why does it do the things it does when it comes to regulating the internet, regulating broadcast, and keeping uh, the airwaves and the digital waves open to speech and open to many different messages. And it's it's really fascinating to think about the Federal Communications Commission of the past and also our media landscape of the past, because as Matthew described earlier in today's episode, none of this – it wasn't just – I'm going to use like the metaphor of like a field where the weeds just grow quite at random. It was, in fact, a, a garden that was tended by our forebears. Yeah. The media landscape was created for better or for worse, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And 
we continue to have that power, although I think young people might often not feel that way. We're given, we're given the, the TV, the internet, and the radio that we have, and it's this way because that's radio is this way because radio kind of is dumb. It's the most logical outcome. Right. It's, it's sort of the it, it, as if it was the the result of natural selection, as if Darwinism had right. social had, Darwinism right. for the media yeah. landscape. So, maybe I have a question for you though. So, you've just described uh, this shift from a public service model uh, that that was really the dominant philosophy towards uh, uh, communications regulation beginning in the in the 1930s, shifting over to this competition model in the 1990s, founded under the idea, the premise that the public interest would be served by there being essentially more competition, more entrants, more companies, more entities owning and operating uh, broadcast stations. That doesn't seem to be what's happened, right? It sure isn't. No. Um, how do we square that circle? Was the impulse to deregulate and to create competition, was that earnest? Did people really believe it, or was and, it was and, it a ruse? And what Paul's, or what's what's in the middle there? And what's behind Paul's question here is that there are more media monopolies. The companies that control the internet and television and radio are grander and control more, right? Far more consolidated than yes. they were in nineteen ninety. There are less mom and pop radio stations in the United States, and fewer mom and pop internet service providers. Right. Well, the response is always the same, which is that yes, now. In the United States, there's a tremendous amount of competition. Consumers have a vast quantity of choices, and that's because of the Internet. The response to all of these consolidations that we've experienced, Clear Channel being the most famous when it comes to radio, is see the Internet. The Internet has created vast um, new set, sets of choices yeah. for Americans, and and that is the response, and it'll be the consistent response for quite a while. But has it's it? But I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I think we have. I mean, I, I know you put this out there is is sort of more rhetorical point, but but has it? I mean, you know, when we look at the the top sites used by most people on the internet, you know, it reflects in many ways the same consolidated right. uh, oligopolies that that we have in other spheres. Correct? Am I am I reading this correctly, Matthew? Well. I think that it is true that the Internet has provided a wide variety of um, ways um, for people to access music, for example, mm -hmm. that are unheard or unheard of for generations past. I mean, I have to say to you, uh, speaking personally, as somebody who grew up in the, you know, as a as a tween and as a teenager in the 1960s and 1970s, if you had told me that there would be this cornucopia of music yeah. available on the internet the way there was, I just would have, I, I just, w I wouldn't have believed you. Um, I, you know, it just, it's just so remarkable to me even today. And I am, you know, I'm very much involved in, in all of this stuff. And I, I where at UC Santa Cruz, I do an online course. I'm teaching myself how to at, you know, edit film in Adobe premiere and I'm making little films for my students and they're going online and there's all this stuff that's going on. And I, you know, it's a, it's remarkable to me how deeply enmeshed I am in all of this cutting edge stuff. At the same time, the questions of how do we experience all of this media as a nation and as a people in a way that allows us to solve problems and discuss and discuss matters and move forward on um, having discussed these problems seems to have completely eluded the um, competition model, even including the Internet model. Instead, what we're instead what we're getting is we're you know, we seem to be, you know, descending into this 
into this um, scary swamp of right. conspiracy theories, um, false information, um, malware, um, deep, deep get, fake news, <laughs> deep deep fake deep fake information. Yeah, and so that there is a a dark side to all of this, which is becoming worse and worse and worse. Yeah, and worse. To- and um and it and in some ways, it harkens back to Herbert Hoover's warnings. Yeah. about commercialism and a completely unregulated non-public service model it, for um for the for, for, for the media. yeah i it, it makes me want to just get on a soapbox for a moment and say that it appears as though now we sort of have a lot of evidence that uh news and the reporting of news and the gathering of news telling the the stories of our cities and our states and our nation uh is expensive and not really worth it when you you know weigh it against how much money it can uh, profit you and the gathering of news by the most amount of people a, a huge diverse uh, workforce of reporters um, would have a huge uh, social benefit but doesn't necessarily translate into profits for the companies that need to hire those people and. Well, now we're here. <laughs> well, so I'd like to 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 turn this around a little bit here, because um, when you when you propose this topic, Eric, yeah, you you sort of also propose it as this idea of we should think about our fantasy FCC, right? And we, so I'd like to spend take- we spend so much time on Radio Survivor, on Radio Survivor, on multiple episodes. We've uh, dare I say. We get to the point where we're whining, we're complaining about this Federal Communications Commission and the way it behaves and the impact that it has on the radio stations that we love, on the kind of internet that we imagined could exist. And it was uh, my hope that we could spend some amount of time, an equal amount of time, a fair amount of time, proposing ideas that um, would benefit these kinds of stations that we love, proposing ideas that would make the media landscape a better place in this country. Yeah, Matthew. So, you know, I'd like to sort of Let take get- this as the opportunity to, to throw it to you and say, looking at our media landscape right now, what could an FCC do differently, you know, yes, or I, what I, could I, a I Congress you- do differently to help enable an FCC? Oh, absolutely. I, I'll give you one thing. One, just one thing. And this is a missed opportunity of the last 20 years, but I still think it should be done. The FCC auctions off spectrum. Yeah. There's a constant... The FCC is constant. You know, the engineers are constantly finding new ways to use um, spectrum all the way up and down the, the spectrum bands. Yeah, they're this, discovering. This they're was, discovering. This was one of my can, earliest stories on the FCC when I was a youngster. Where uh, Gen Xers will remember that there used to be other television channels on a on a TV dial that were that Weird Al made fun of in his movie. Go see UHF. The UHF band went up for auction in the early aughts, and it. Uh, it, it went to AT&T, I believe, for billions of dollars. That's right. So this money goes directly into the Treasury. And a lot of it has already been sold, but some of it has not been sold. And I'm sure that there will be more as engineers discover new ways um, to monetize um, the spectrum. A big portion of that money should go into a fund for public broadcasting. Yeah. It should just go directly into a fund for public broadcasting, and that should be called the National Public Broadcasting Fund. The Mr. You know, Rogers as, as, Act. You know, the Mr. Rogers Act, something along those lines. What we had, as you as you know, as we all know, several years ago, the FCC gave a whole bunch of licenses 
out to low-power FM radio stations across the United States. They're all getting these licenses, and many of them are setting up these radio stations, and a lot of them are really struggling. And we followed that for a while. We followed some radio stations. I followed some radio stations for Radio Survivor, some groups trying to raise GoFundMe money Mm -hmm. um, for their radios and failing, you know, basically failing, you know, basically not being able to get started because they couldn't raise enough money because a lot of young people have given up on broadcast radio because they think it sucks, which, to be fair, a large portion of it does. Yeah. Um, What if there was an auction? What if that what if a large portion of those of of that spectrum money was set aside, put into a fund and provided to conventional public broadcasting and also to these low power FM radio stations, which are Interestingly, which continue to be regulated on the public service model, they're supposed to provide eight hours a day of local of local radio. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. Eight hours a day. That's their. Uh, that was their. They're not required to, but when if they made the promise to, they got a leg up in the competition for if there was competition for a license, they got a leg up by promising and, to and, do and that kind have- of service. And they also have to promise to have their uh, main studio in their contour area. That was another thing. Yeah. So none of these are a requirement, but they're all things which if you promise to do them, then you got a leg up in the process. We're talking about new low-power FM stations around the country. So so it's interesting that this form of regulation continues to adhere to the public service model. Yeah. But with no funding whatsoever. (laughs) You're Um, you're on your own. Do good. You're on on your own. Here's a box of pretzels um, and a license. Either fail or succeed. If you fail, just let us know and we'll take your license and give it to somebody else if we can find somebody. This is a really good example of abandoning the competition model and basically saying we need to put our resources into broadcasters who are willing and able to provide public service. So I would give, I would give that as sort of example number one of a contemporary way to adhere to Herbert Hoover's vision of the public service model. Mm-hmm. And that's it, what's interesting to me about that proposal, Matthew, is that it doesn't is not a radical rewrite. You're not you're not attempting to have Congress turn back the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And, and it's 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 important to note that there hasn't been a Telecommunications Act of 2016 because it is an enormous uh, Byzantine piece of legislation could congress uh, even the ability to function get it, to right pass the, the fact that it was passed uh, you know by a a divided congress it yeah. was a bipartisan bill uh for all of its problems um you know it actually you know it was a bipartisan bill uh with both democrats and republicans signing on in 1996 this seems like a fairly simple approach to at least you know solving some some to, some bit of the problem yeah. because currently public broadcasting is in part but not entirely funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, an right. independent and fun- entity that gets uh, federal funding. Uh, it gets, fun- and it gets, and it gets federal funding. I think every two years they submit a new budget for it. And that is always politicized, you know, always, you know, a, a public broadcaster said this, a public broadcaster said that, you know, the, you know, we can't, you know, we, and, and, and Republican presidents regularly call for the end of the corporation for public broadcasting. And of course, um, rural Republicans across the United States regularly say, no, 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 this is the only way we get any kind of public radio service or public any kind television of local, for that matter, or public, yeah. televi- public television yeah. service. So no, you can't get rid of this. Um, so, you know, there's, there's this sort of ritual, which is that Amer- the American Republican presidents always talk about phasing this out and r- Republican rural politicians 
politicians always say, no, 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 you got to put it back in. And that's what happens. It's kind of this. And they're usually fighting over the price of like one airplane in, in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, right. Pentagon arsenal. Well, and, and what's important to note about the funding of public broadcasting is that, you know, this comes from the 1960s. Right. You know, uh, the Carnegie Commission. And this was something that was widely supported by the commercial broadcasters of the day. It, re- it, it The creation of public broadcasting, of, of the PBS and yeah. NPR. Which is a story I would love to dig deeper into on Radio Survivor in the future. Just the whole notion of where all of this innovation came from in the 1960s on this public television channels. Widely supported by yeah. right, the heads of CBS, by, by Inclu- William Paley. In- you know. Including including uh, Linda Johnson's wife, who owned right. a broadcast station. Right, Lady Bird Johnson. Matthew, why did the, the big commercial broadcasters of the day, who might these days uh, be caught inveighing against uh, corporation for public broadcasting funding, why were they so pro-creating public broadcasting in, in 1968? Because it, it, got, it, it got the obligation for them to, um, to, to provide public service um, content. It got them off the hook. It took them off the hook. It that's freed right. them up to air more game shows. Again, that's right. They and they—that's the reason why they supported it because they saw it as a as a way that broadcasting would it would be over there, and they wouldn't have to worry about it as much. Right. The, the need had been sort of demonstrated to have, uh, you know, especially programming for children. I think educational programming yeah. was probably one of the things that won the day. But as well, news and, and sort of and public affairs programming, and it's interesting how that gets lost in the intervening fifty fifty some years. Right. That. In that time, we forget that this was sort of a, it was almost like a, an escape valve. Yeah, right? well, and I think it's also we live in a world now where public television, much like the popular uh, conception of what radio is like, is a pretty sleepy thing that old people love. I remember uh, going to a community center here in Portland, Oregon, and seeing a flyer uh, demanding that the public television station here in, in Oregon uh, continue to air Lawrence Welk. Uh, reruns unbelievable forever and never old person it's i i I want you to know that as an old person this is extremely embarrassing to me (laughs) and but Uh, there was a time where public television was a but you're young by that standard yeah was a very was a very uh innovative place for media and lots of uh interesting content lots of good stories right that that an an npr affiliates uh find themselves hung over by uh by airing car talk, mm-hmm. you know there there are those of us who who oh, invade gosh, that, yeah. that car talk. Can we leave the car talk topic? No longer needs to be aired <laughs> uh, and valuable airtime uh, because it is all in like Lawrence Welk all yeah. in reruns and and at least one of the hosts is dead. It's it's a it's a ghost voice. But there was a time where, but there are NPR powerful donors amazing, that require. Right. When it comes to car talk, it, I, when it comes day. to car talk, I I, I borrow from Marie, Marie Antoinette. Let them eat downloads. Yeah. Um, um, Matthew, we were talking about the FCC today on Radio Survivor and what good it could do, say, let's just say in 2020 when uh, we have a new executive uh, branch of the U.S. government, possibly a, a Congress that has a different uh, a different set of, of political uh, different priorities, priorities. Yeah. What, what could change in the American media landscape? So we, so one thing you pointed out, Matthew, is that there's a loss opportunity that 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 yeah that electromagnetic spectrum, the uh, the radio waves that are used for cell phones, satellite, uh, television, etc. 
uh, are regularly auctioned off by the FCC to changing the hands bidder. for billions of dollars. Uh, licenses to use this, right? To use this spectrum are, are auctioned off. And My that story- this money could be used to fund. Uh, public broadcasting, just, for instance. Just for perspective, I think it's worth reminiscing. The story I reported on this Spectrum auction in the early aughts the, the, was that Google was complaining that they couldn't afford to compete with AT&T. They couldn't afford to bid for this Spectrum, which is a... Some oh, 18 years ago. But yes. yeah, the, the conception of Google not being able to... I mean, that's the amount of money we're talking about. Right, right. <laughs> um, what else might could happen? Matthew, let, let's say, you know, well, this is something that is this is something that has been kicking around in my head for a very long time. And I'm sure other people have thought about it. And it is very controversial. It's a very controversial thing um, to pro- to propose. But I think that sooner or later, if we ever um, come out of this political nightmare tunnel that we're in right now, if we come out the other end um, and we, you know, we walk into the light and we start cleaning up all the wreckage um, around us. Um, the question of who should get a broadcast license and even the question of who should get a cable access to the cable um, networks in the United States, I think, um, looms large. And I think that the question is um, that, that, that there needs to be a proceeding, at least, about whether or not the FCC should set up rules for broadcasters and media entities being able to um, have access to these networks, but political organizations not being able to have access to these networks. So and this is, uh, can you be more specific about that? When you talk about a political uh, yeah, ta- organization, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about Fox and, and MSNBC. So partisan, I'm about, so partisan I'm, I'm ta- media enterprises. Hmm. I'm, talking about, I'm talking about organizations that are, so, that are now so intricately involved in pushing for one political party or another political party, that they're no longer providing meaningful public affairs broadcasting. They are simply they are simply um, political contenders who happen to occupy large portions yeah. um, of the of the nation's media resources. And I could see how this is controversial, but I could also see how even opening things up for a national discussion about the content of these channels. Uh, would help how how much of how much of the of the public of the public um information airwaves and 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 network resources do these organizations take up and should they be allowed and should they be allowed um to occupy that much space given that they are increasingly less media organizations and more basically just um political uh, you know, the, the they are they they are tools of political movements. Yeah, the now, communications Matthew, wing of different political movements. The argument for in favor of you know Fox, MSNBC, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, you know, would say, well, you know, under like a consumer choice model, I mean, consumers choose this. You know, they can choose to watch uh, the News Hour on PBS. Right. They can choose to listen to. Uh, you know, all things considered on NPR, but but all of these millions of people instead they they choose to watch Fox and Friends. They choose uh to watch Rachel Maddow or to listen to Sean Hannity. So you know, wouldn't that just be the federal government stepping on people's consumer choice? Look, if it was up to consumers, and it, that includes me, <laughs> actually, on some levels, 
Um, I would just want to see cat videos um, <laughs> on the Internet all day long. I think that on some level, if, 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 if the Internet was nothing but cat videos, um, I would be very happy. I would just get up in the morning. I'd open up the open yeah. up Google. I did. There'd be little cute little kitty in cats. In fact, happier, happier, happier than you are today. I I think I'd be much happier than I am uh, now. I want to shift. Yeah. The... Also, I just want to say okay. dog videos. Also, fairness doctrine here. You know, dog videos, cute yeah. hamsters. <laughs> I, I want to shift Matthew to a question. I think it's related. Uh, I had a fantasy uh, but, once uh, that. But hold on a second. Okay. I just want to finish my point. Uh, my point is, is that this is not a popular thing to say, but there's a difference between the public interest and consumers and consumer choice. Yeah. Well, I was um, going to and, – okay. and, and it's a very tricky question because who gets to determine what the public interest model is? But our resources, as Herbert Hoover said, there needs to be no national – there needs to be no national regret. You know, there must be no national regret that we have parted with a great national asset. And what that means is, is that that national asset has to be more than just our than, than just something that satisfies our basest consumer and political instincts. And the question of how to, you know, how to fulfill um, that higher model is a really difficult question, but it is one that needs to be discussed. We and can't escape it. Do you think we see a parallel in the way that uh, that someone like Alex Jones has been, as we call it, deplatformed? Right. Where Facebook and YouTube, amongst many, decided, you know, I mean, under under duress, of course, yeah. but decided here here is a, a, a baldly partisan ish uh, media a whole new level of partisan. A whole, but, well, there, there, <laughs> but, anyway. yeah, but so. there are also I mean, there's echoes of, of earlier times, which we probably yeah. don't want to go down. That yellow alley. journalism. Look up yellow journalism yeah, uh, and more. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but finally deciding, you know, we shouldn't be providing uh, providing a platform to this. But what you're, it sounds like you're you're also sort of suggesting, Matthew, is that it's it's worthy of of what you, I think you call like a national conversation, a proceeding, yeah. an, an element. Because and, and the FCC has had proceedings where, uh, you know, they, they propose rules and and not only just ask people to write in, but have gone on road tours. You know, right. city to city, yeah. to take in public comments is—is is that sort of what you're what you're proposing here, Matthew? My my vision, I mean, to the extent that anybody cares about my vision of anything, but we asked, yeah, um, <laughs> you you guys asked my my vision of um, public service regulation is not that you tell people what they can't do, but that you um, foreground and you privilege players who will right. provide that kind of service. Um, You'll you foreground foreground and privilege broadcasters who will stay out of who will who will, who will in in there. I mean you I mean you have Sean Hannity uh, apparently according to the New Yorker and other broadcasting and other and other and other newspapers in which Sean Hannity has this broadcast and then he talks to Donald Trump at night. Yeah, I mean basically it, this is a broadcasting service that is part of the Trump campaign. Yeah, he's uh, Sean Hannity is is uh, for all extents and purposes the real. Uh, What's the what's the job in the White House when you're communications, communications director. director? Well, and you know, I want to. Uh, so, I, so what I'm saying is, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is, is that we need to foreground and privilege yeah. entities that will provide this kind of public service and de-emphasize um, entities that will um, that will not. That is not to say that they can't be around. So that's a great. But this reflects back to some a point you're making earlier, Matthew. Right? You 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 brought out the uh, with regard to funding. You talked about low power FM, 
right? right. Community, non-commercial, required to be non-commercial radio stations. And the entire structure... Required to be local. Requ- right. The entire structure of this licensing was designed to privilege... Uh, to provide a leg up to particular types of public service. And you, you mentioned a few, but I'll repeat them, that they would provide a certain level of local originated programming on a daily or weekly basis, that they might have a, a locally you know, cited, you know, basically publicly accessible studio. And you, know, you didn't have to make these promises to apply for the license. And if you were in a community where... Uh, you were otherwise a qualified entity, which meant you were a nonprofit corporation in your state. You didn't have to be a 501c3, but which is a federal nonprofit status with the IRS, but you had to be incorporated as a nonprofit in your state. You had to exist for a certain amount of time ahead of uh, applying for the license. And it, you know there are a few other kind of local requirements. You couldn't own other licenses. You couldn't be owning another station. But if you qualified, yeah. you didn't have to promise to to do the local service. You didn't have to promise to have the local studio. And if no one else applied for the same license and there was no competition, you'd get it. But if somebody else applied for the license and said, no, we will provide that eight hours of local programming. We will have a, have this local uh, studio that's accessible and made all these other, other promises. Uh, they got in line ahead of you. They would get consideration. Yeah. They would get the points. And so you're almost in a way, Matthew, you're sort of proposing that we can take a sort of point system as, as is used for, was used for the low power FM licensing. And that could be about be applied to these other, uh, other systems, for for granting licenses, franchises, and access uh, again to to privilege certain types of public service uh, above and ahead things that, that are thought to be less in in, in the public interest. Is that, is that, do I get that right? That's, that that's basically exactly it. You basically provide the most resources and the most platform resources right. to um, to entities that are willing to share. Um, their um, their broadcasting service with a wide variety of individuals on a local level um, in in the case of the um, low power FM um, model and I think that that should be expanded I'm less interested in for example bringing back the fairness doctrine which I think was always a very difficult task for yeah. the Federal Communications Commission in the first place for you know studies of it showed that you know the vast majority of fairness doctrine complaints never got anywhere um only very rarely did the FCC actually say to the broadcasters you have to do this if somebody else does that uh, you know it's too that was too complicated and difficult to right. ta- it suggests task. that there's only two sides to every story and right. and then which you know you can imagine a world i mean community radio people probably already live in some of that world where there's a lot of point of views that that you just eventually say no thank you right. you're not you're well, not getting then, on the airwaves but then there's the grand question that i'm going to throw to you matthew which which i think would be raised in objection to what you propose um and that's what about the first amendment mm. what about free speech wouldn't this be a case of the federal government saying that only some viewpoints are okay that only some people have the ability to speak does, does the supreme court of the united states never overturned the fairness doctrine what, they, was it challenged to the uh, it was Court? it was challenged yeah. it was challenged in 1964 mm. the supreme court said that the fairness doctrine did not censor a radio station it simply it, it did not tell the radio station that they couldn't air certain material it simply said that if they aired certain material in one case somebody who called a what called a journalist he didn't like a communist that they had to give that journalist access 
to that radio station to say, no, I'm not a communist. The Supreme Court in the 1960s said very clearly that is not a violation of the First Amendment. And uh, to this day, the Supreme Court has never overturned um, the fairness doctrine. It has never overturned that basic model. It did say in one in one important case that Congress never passed a law called the Fairness Doctrine Law, that that was something that was created by the Federal Communications Commission. It did say that in one important case, but it's never said that 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 regulation was a broad was a violation of free speech. And there still exists a, a kind of a version of the fairness doctrine with regard to federal elections, correct? Where right. if if a in theory, a, yeah. Well, no, in, no, in actuality. Well, I mean, but it's the no, way it's it, practiced. Uh, you know, certain candidates don't have to be given equal time if certain shows are structured a certain well, way. Well, but it, but nevertheless, yeah. uh, let I, I let let's lay out what yeah. it says. It says that if a candidate makes an appearance on in, outside of a legitimate news uh, coverage, so if 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 there's a candidate who who gives a stump speech in in your town, if a candidate and a TV station goes and, and covers show. it, then that's considered legitimate news. But right, a candidate going on the Tonight Show means that the tonight show has to offer the equal time equal time meaning to the minute to the yeah. second to another candidate for the same office they don't they, they you know the candidate can say i don't want to go on the tonight show but they they're required yeah. to get it and the same is true for individual broadcast stations correct matthew i mean and this is still right. the law and and still- again and the courts have never said that that was a violation of the first amendment yeah and it's really it's really nice to imagine a world in which local radio stations actually can do a lot of good with this equal time rule, uh, especially with candidates running for local office, because there's such such a lack of of uh, local news in the United States. So having radio actually give time to everybody running for office is which, not, which not a bad thing to imagine. Well, you're right, well, which actually does happen. Yes. I mean, and it, it's it, always amazing. It actually it's does a, happen. A because, blessing from and, you the know, media. It, I mean, let's just let's just take into account who who wrote the law congress mm-hmm. who benefits right. from the law yeah <laughs> congress there is no law well incumbents don't benefit from the law well and the, the, they do but they do because they get equal time sure 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 yeah but incumbents and, and it's it's time. important to point out that this does not apply to your state candidates it does not apply to local candidates it only applies to federal candidates oh i didn't know that it only applies to to candidates for federal office president senate and uh, and and I thought uh, house, I thought it was uh, local urban. No, oh, we it just is we not. just would practice that at our, at the radio station where yeah. I worked. But I didn't know we weren't required to by uh, by Supreme But it, Court. you know, it, 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 I'm just pointing out that there's all these instances where, to some extent, right, certain speech is privileged. Right. Again, at, at no point is is uh, the FCC in the position of telling the broadcast station it can't have a candidate on. It's simply defining the terms yeah. under which they can be on. I mean, and that's why it is often a problem for, say, like a, a talk show host to run for office because – Yeah, they have to quit their job first. Because it, it, it creates this equal time issue uh, for that, that their employers will, will be forced to have to, uh, to, to contend with. So, uh, Matthew Lassar, uh, you are one of the radio survivors here. Um, you've offered three books on – 
uh, communications and, and, and radio history, really. And, and we've been talking about sort of our, uh, both sort of the problems of the FCC and the problems of how our uh, media system is regulated. And then you've offered some, some solutions. You've offered some ideas that you think could help to address uh, the structural problems we've teased out here over this past hour on Radio Survivor. Uh, do you have a final thought? Well, I just think that we need to stop thinking about the public interest as a, um, you know, as a magical process in which if we just let everybody compete with everybody else, that that somehow the public interest will be um, fulfilled. We need to think about what the public interest is. We yeah. need to look at the experiences of the last um, of, of the last decade or so. Um, Thirty years. Uh, we need to. You know, we need to look at we need to look look at what our society is like now. We need to look at what the interest what the internet is like now, and we need to think through um, what's good about the internet and what's scary and dangerous about the internet, and um, and how how we're going to address that as a nation, not as a not as a not as a as a collection of millions and millions of individual people with our 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 hungers and our um, obsessions and our libidos, our like buttons. And our like buttons, but as but as a nation, and um, that means that we need to go. We need to have a sea change in terms of how the Federal Communications Commission thinks about the public interest. And I think that we need to look back at the early years of Herbert Hoover. I know it may sound strange <laughs> to some of our listeners that I'm, um, I'm that I'm I'm, I'm extolling the, the words of, of of one of the most um, famous Republican presidents um, in American history, but I am, and so there you are. Matthew it was Lassar. a different party a hundred years ago. <laughs> Thank I you so much. much. Uh, we'd love to hear from listeners yeah. on this topic. What do you think of Matthew's ideas? What would be your solutions to the problems of our media environment? Yeah, right it's a now? fantasy draft for the media landscape. What would you do to fix it? What what do you what would you like to see more of in the United States? Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com if you give us permission. We'll certainly read your comment or excerpts on the show. Maybe on we the will air. do an entire episode about your one idea or and go ahead get some guests record a voice memo it. on your smartphone and send it you know we'll air your voice just send it to us to uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com or you can tweet at us at radio survivor we're also on facebook we always love hearing from our listeners and you know we are a listener and reader supported enterprise you can learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com slash support we're making a zine a printed version of Radio Survivor. Free speech. And you can learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com slash zine. And Matthew, uh, we will have uh, links to many of the things that you've talked about here. Uh, background as well as uh, articles you've written for Radio Survivor. We'll have them at our show notes for this episode, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 201. And now, uh, thanks to my monkeying around with the settings in many podcast apps, you will see the show notes in full. Ah. So you will get the, sh and some, some even support links. So you'll be even click through without even having to go to your web browser. If Thank you're you, listening Bob. as a podcast on some platforms like Google or Stitcher, you will see all the show notes and they will be linkable. Matthew, it was such a pleasure to have you on radio survivor, uh, two weeks in a row. Thank you so much for joining us today to share, to share your voice with the listeners. Thank you. I, can nice. I podcast? Oh, sorry. 
may I podcast with you guys a little bit for a moment? Sure. We should we should really give the uh, can I can we can oh we yeah, give yeah. The full... well so let me tease what I want to yeah, talk yeah, okay, about go for it. is I have a new favorite album and it is related to the history of public television and I just want to gush about it. It's from the sixties or the early seventies and I'm I will tell you about it. It's an amazing thing that I streamed quite by accident. The algorithm that. Uh, that I that I that I generate data for every day because I listen to Spotify served me this insane uh, acid jazz children's album that I loved and I looked in I did a little bit of Wikipedia ing and discovered that it was a one thousand dollar piece of vinyl before it was recently released as a stream because it was such a rare item so that's what i want to talk about okay. and it has a history it has a connection to public television okay all right well now now you've got my yeah. attention yeah. i just wanted to say that uh you know we're making this zine um and it will be available to everyone who supports radio survivor at our patreon campaign at patreon.com slash radio survivor at the five dollar level you just need to sign up by august 1st so right now we're at the beginning of July as we record this. You've got a few weeks to to, to figure it out. Um, and this is a way to say thank you to our supporters. There, it will be uh, There's going to be visuals, cartoons, illustrations, and photos uh, contributed by your radio, humble radio survivors here. It'll be our first print enterprise. We hope there'll be more. And it's all in service of us trying to go and tell some history yeah. and recount as we go forward into the 20th anniversary of the birth of indie media and the WTO protests in Seattle in November of 1999. We want to do some and more. And the birth of Low Power FM in January of 2000. Our, our goal as a podcast, as a website, and as a radio program is to do um, as much original reporting as is possible to tell this story that we know uh, deserves a chapter in the history of the United States media landscape. It's an incredible recently lived uh, part yeah, and, of and, and, how radio and the internet looks. And just talking, you know, looking at what we talked about today on the program, you know, how did those public interest ideals right. get encoded in the creation of yeah. Low Power FM? Despite, it seems a very anomalous. the uphill battle of our, you know, the kind of generation of regulation that we live in in the United States, uh, people did amazing work to get a little bit of great radio to pry a little bit of great radio from the clutches of uh, what yeah. currently exists. How did these public interest obligations get put in there in the wake of the most radical deregulation of radio in American history? Yeah. Just just, just four years later. So, uh, you know, there's a lot there. We want to tell the story. We need your help to do it. This is, this is going to be real work and work that uh, will require folks to take time away from other, from jobs yeah. and from uh, freelancing opportunities. So the plan is like that. we made us, we're making a zine, we're writing it and we will uh, provide that paper copy of the zine to supporters who come to our Patreon page and uh, donate Five dollars, a five dollar a month, a month pledge. So, but you just need to sign up, and and by the time we send you the zine, having been made one one payment is all we're yeah. asking. We hope you'll stick around and help us do it. And ultimately, we're looking for all, by August one to have a hundred supporters. If we have a hundred supporters yeah. who, are, who are being able to give individual little bit of money, a little bit to Radio Survivor every month, we're able to do much more of this work. We would love to tell the story of the birth of public broadcasting. Oh man. Right. And, and to, to really put some perspective on what went right and what went wrong. Um, this is all the work we'd like to do. We need your help to do it. And even if you can't make the five bucks a month for the zine, uh, we still say thank you if you can give as little as a dollar a month as a, and yeah. that will help us get to our goal of 100 uh, supporters. Yes, you can you can uh, you can help us uh, do this original reporting 
as uh, as summer turns to fall here, we're going. We want to turn our attention towards this history that matters so much to us and inspire uh, the next, you know, the next uh, uh, spin of the wheel, so that more good things emerge. Uh, here in in the media landscape of the world, yeah, we've seen some new supporters come in the last week or two since we've uh, made this announcement. We'd love to. See, we need to see even more. So just go to radiosurvivor dot com. All right, guys. Slash. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, radiosurvivor dot com slash support or uh, patreon dot com slash radiosurvivor. Thank you for that. So, Paul. so the big to... reveal, Eric. Oh. oh my the the album. Have you guys heard of Stark Reality, the no. band? Matthew, you've heard of Stark Reality? No, not all. I all right. So yeah. Spotify just serves it up. My ears uh, explode with delight. It is, um, you know, everyone should go uh, Google it and we'll listen to it. put it in it. the show notes. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm sure uh, you, if you don't have a Spotify account, you can certainly uh, listen to it on YouTube. And this is what it is. It was, I'm reading from the Wikipedia article, as an American jazz rock band which recorded the 1970 album The Stark Reality Discovers Hoagie Carmichael's Music Shop, a heavily improvised reinvention of a 1958 children's album by songwriter Hoagie Carmichael to be used in the show Hoagie Carmichael's Music Shop, which aired on PBS. Wow. So, uh, Matthew, so I know the name Hoagie Carmichael, but I really honestly don't really know who that is do you know who hoagie carmichael is hoagie carmichael was a um, a big songwriter and actor and a singer he was a big tin pan alley songwriter of the of the 1930s and you've heard his songs stardust georgia on my mind oh yes of course uh, the nearness the nearness of you heart and soul um um uh, and he 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 he, he was uh, he worked with a lyricist named Johnny Mercer, who was also very oh, uh, yes, familiar. Johnny Mercer. Um, um, and um, he was he was he was a wonderful performer and singer. Um, he uh, was in a bunch of ho- he was in a bunch of really cool Hollywood movies. Sometimes he would just sort of show up and he would start playing the piano somewhere, and the actors in the movie would be around him um, <laughs> and si- and sing with him. And um, he's a huge influence on American um, 20th century American culture. All right, now check this turn of events out. In 1970, Hoagie Carmichael's son, Bix, worked at the public television station WGBH in Boston. He wanted to produce a television show with children's songs that were written by his father. He hired vibraphonist Monty Stark to compose theme music because uh, Bix had had experience in her. Oh, no, because Stark had experience in arranging. Oh, no, because okay, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to read uh, Wikipedia as if I'm a radio reporter. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. So uh, Bix, who was Carmichael's son, who worked at WGBH television, public television in Boston, hired Monty Stark to update his dad's album for the rock and roll generation. Stark, the vibraphonist, wrote arrangements with bassist Phil Morrison, and they hired saxophonist Carl Atkins and guitarist John Abercrombie. The music was an odd combination of psychedelic rock and bebop jazz. They played as a quartet in Cambridge, but the audiences were either tiny or non-existent. A tour in California failed to meet their expectations, so the band broke up. In 1970, the album was released by AJP Records, a label owned by jazz pianist Ahmed Jamal. It was reissued in 2003 by Stone's Throw. And so I don't I don't know if this was televised, this uh, this children's album by Stark Reality. But that's what it appears. It, what, when I, I've seen photos of them on stage in a 
television studio, in a public television studio in Boston. What's lost often to people now is how really experimental public television and public Especially radio Boston. were in the late 60s and early 70s. In part, it's a whole new medium, right, in a lot right. of ways, that, that is now freshly unbound from commercial pressures, which had been dominating broadcasting mostly otherwise yeah. up to that point. And young people were given jobs to right. produce yeah, television. So people who were like, yeah, fresh out of college, you know, fresh with, with film degrees and broadcasting yeah. degrees and set loose. Uh, have you guys... Uh, again, podcasting, podcasting. Have you guys heard of the book Astro Weeks that just came out last year? Is that about uh, Van Morrison? It's it's about it's it's about everything. Have you heard of it, Matthew? No. It's up your alley. Uh, if you had a if you had a life in which you were allowed to read books in your free time, uh, you would read this book. It just came out, and uh, it was written by uh, Ryan Walsh, I believe is his name. Uh, Ryan Walsh is a, a Gen X writer who uh, was obsessed with the album Astro Weeks and also is a uh, Boston native. And when he discovered that Van Morrison's album Astro Weeks uh, was written and partially uh, uh, generated by the Boston sound, by, by, by the hippie culture of Boston, he dug into the history and discovered so many stories of Boston's contribution to 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 pop culture that uh he wrote the he wrote a book that's you know nominally the reason you might pick it up off the shelf is because you're a fan of van morrison and you want to know more about the astro weeks album but then i read half of it and had to return it to the library uh because someone else had it reserved um it's also just about everything that was going on in boston in the late 60s including lots of amazing tidbits about wgbh this public television station yeah, and one the, of the largest public uh, broadcasting entities in the united states and like the incredible uh gra- like they they had what essentially in the, the argument in this book is that they had what was really the first uh you know hippie inspired counterculture inspired television program in the nation was this show and I, I should I could look it up if I had a if I had ten minutes what this show was called. But it was they found a they found a young British academic, like a like a man in his early thirties who uh who would play the respectable T V host, but he would then do very freeform uh episodes of his television show that for people watching was like to me it's reading the book about the history, it sounded like the same way people uh, uh, 10 years later, or was it just five years later, felt about seeing SNL on television, that they couldn't believe they were finally seeing their own attitudes represented on the TV screen because the TV screen was a very square place, right, in the 1960s. There we go. All right. Astro Weeks. Highly recommended. Ryan Walsh. I guess, so you you don't have any tidbits for me about WGBH in Boston, Matthew. Um, not at this time. I don't have any um, right. tidbits, but of course, I've been listening to WGBH content um, since forever, since a huge portion of public television comes out of um, WGBH, um, um, uh, especially, you know, mainstream um, like public TV. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, the last bit of things that I always wanted to mention on the podcast uh, about this book, I, I actually tweeted about it, but it was so long ago, I might not be able to find my tweet in time, is that this television show that I was just suggesting people check out that I'll, we'll find a link. I'll, I'll come up with it and put it, the link in the show notes so that I'm not totally ignorant. 
um, it was finally booted off the air uh, because they allowed a very, very, very baby-faced Howard Zinn seven minutes to give a speech against the Vietnam War. Howard Zinn of the People's History of the United States. Yeah. And radio is pivotal in that scene, you know. So it's, that, it's during that time that uh, it's WBCN, I think that's right, um, is a freeform station. In, in, in that sort of true uh, free-form spirit of that time. Peter Wolf, who had become the uh, singer for the Jay Giles Band, mm-hmm. was also a late-night host, and I think he had some involvement with uh, Van Morrison in Boston uh-huh. at that time. So he's in the book, probably. Yeah, so you've probably later in the book than where you're able to get to. But uh-huh. radio was pivotal, actually, in, in, in the scene, because um, it was a place where uh, you might hear you know actual real blues of the sort that was really not played right. on most mainstream radio. When blues was, radio. A, was a groundbreaking musical genre and not like... Right. Yeah, not, and, not but just hearing, what, you know, what you community know, radio does on Sundays. Yeah, true, you know, and, and, and true sort of, you know, Chicago or, or Delta blues, um, not English reinterpretations of it, but it, it would have certainly been an influence, I'm sure, on Van Morrison and other musicians yeah. uh, in the Boston area at that time. I think, you know, these things do all tie together, ultimately. That's your history. That's your second history lesson for the day, listeners. Thank you so much. Um, here, here. Oh man! So it looks like Ryan Walsh has written about. Uh, he's got an article in the Boston Globe that I can't click on, titled "Boston's Most Radical TV Show Blew the Minds of a Stoned Generation in 1967." Oh, the show is called "What's Happening, Mister Silver." <laughs> and it's very 1967. And it was, and it was, a, and it was booted off the air by the bosses at at the TV station after Howard Zinn gave a seven-minute response, right, fairness doctrine, to the Vietnam War. But it also uh, may very well be one of the earliest televised anti-war sentiments. uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's it's an important moment. When did the Smothers Brothers make their... uh... When did they put their foot in their mouth and lose their show? Yeah, all right, Matthew, do you know? um, I think that the earliest anti-war sentiment... Serious anti-war sentiment was um, um, uh, broadcast in 1969 um, when a then-famous um, um, mainstream TV broadcast, news broadcaster uh, was was broadcasting um, a story about the Tet Offensive, a gigantic attack on South Vietnam by Ho Chi Minh's North Vietnamese forces. Um, and um, he was named as Walter Cronkite, and yeah. he was a really big deal in the late 1960s. Right. Um, and he was, you know, he was sort of Mr. M- Mr. N- News and Public Information to millions and millions of Americans. He very rarely weighed in on anything. And um, Walter Cronkite was doing a broadcast about this um, enormous attack, which seemed to come out of nowhere and which was forcing the U.S. Um, um, military to you know, fight back with everything that it had. And Walter Cronkite turned to the audience and he said, hey, I thought we were winning this war. Yeah. But that and was that I, was two years later. That was two years after Howard Zinn yes. was on TV. That, that was only a local television, though it was but, not a but, national yeah, broadcast, of course. But this is a but this is a national response, yeah. and it was um it was devastating to the Johnson administration. Right. Um. Um. This is. I'm sorry. This is in. 1967. Oh, okay, so around the exact same time. Yeah, around 1967. This is just yeah after just just after the Tet, after, after the Tet Offensive and um um. You know, Johnson administration was just floored by this one by this one simple comment. Anyway, I think that that I mean, not not to 
no. gainsay anything that Howard Zinn did, but I think that yeah. the fact that it came from Walter um, Cronkite was a really big deal. The other thing I want to mention about this crazy television show, What's Happening, Mr. Silver, is I, I can't remember if it was in response to getting uh, kicked off the air or prior to getting kicked off the air. They produced a show at WGBH where I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, where they actually had, because WGBH had more than one television channel, and they set up this uh, an interview in the studio and and asked listeners to go get another television set from their house and turn one TV set to one channel of WGBH or whatever it was, and the other television set to the other channel, and then the two people being... Inter- the interviewer and the interviewee would appear on each separate channel and they broadcast that interview in that way which wow. is if there's ever been transmission arts that's that that i'm still excited by that i want to do that in, in portland if i can get away there with was it. a time in which am radio stations teamed up to do stereo yeah do yeah do am radio stations i love it yeah all right. All right. Thank you for letting me. Uh, uh, yes, thank you for uh, laying that on us, uh, Eric. We'll have all this in the show notes. But check out Stark Reality. I mean, you know, I might be alone in thinking it's cool, but I think it's really cool. I really I love this uh, acid jazz children's music. And uh, it's so funny that this vinyl piece of vinyl once was uh, it actually still goes for thousands of dollars if you can get a because it was. You know, an indie pressing in 1967, A fool and his money are easily parted. <laughs> it's this. We're going to continue to fight offline about uh, what's what. What's the value of a hundred dollars today on Radio All Silver. right, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, it's really cool to have you today, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Sure, 